Well, we may not be the fated child of destiny, but we're here to talk gibberfish, aren't we, Dom? Sorry, I yawned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not starting again. We're going from the top. We're, we're just going from this. Because uh, we're here okay. to talk about The Witcher, uh, season two. We decided to give this one a special episode all of its own, just because it it's kind of going to get spoilery, I think, at points. And we decided to just give it its own little uh, episode to prevent anyone from hearing their own spoilers and also just so we can kind of concentrate because... There's a lot to go through with The Witcher. It's a very dense series, both on television and in book form. So I thought we'd just give it its own nice little package, send it out to people, and then clickbait them by saying The Witcher Explores or something in the title. Yeah, we'll put in something like Henry Cavill secretly hates cats or something like that. <laughs> Actively working against shutting down cats. <laughs> as long as it's cats, the musical production, I'd be okay with that. Those two. Yeah. Uh, I, I I thought I'd explain that um, I actually finished... Re- er, Listening to the audiobooks for The Witcher, um, I got really into it after watching the season of the, the Netflix show and decided to just binge the entire thing over the course of just a couple of weeks. Um, I think I took maybe a total of 14 days to finish all seven books of the main series and I most of the way through uh, Season of Swords. Season of Storms? Season of Swords. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, the extra little add-on they had for some reason 10 years after the main story finished. Yeah, I think it was a season of storms. Yeah, season of storms. Got it open on my phone now, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's a great series overall. I'd like to say, um, both the Netflix show and the uh, the books have their own qualities. And I thought we'd go through talking about season two. I I don't know if we. I'm sure we must have mentioned season one during the main podcast, or might, I tried to look back through the archives and see if it was like given its own special episode. I don't think we did that. Hmm. But we must have talked. Yeah, about I, it. I don't think we. We were not heavily in the, the Witcher spectrum at that point. We just kind of, you know, oh, it was a good show, we'll talk about it a bit, but I think with season two, it's now become that big a thing mm. to do any kind of justice when you get. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that the Witcher as a franchise is here to stay. That first season was was was, was fine, but, you know, with it being on a Netflix uh, broadcast, it's going to be a bit kind of uh, risky. You can't really guarantee that Netflix will continue a show beyond season one. Especially if you're a live-action adaptation of a popular nerd franchise. <clears throat> Care about me, what? It's three weeks. Three <laughs> weeks longer than it should have. <laughs> should have been fired from the start. Um, right, so I don't know how you really want to talk about this. I just have some notes in general, and then as the person who's listening to the uh, the audiobooks, and has actually started playing the video games. Um, actually, I'm going to talk about the video games first. Um, I bought the trilogy on Steam for like £6.50, which is absurd. Uh, if you want to talk about the la- lack of value in uh, games over time, that is three AAA titles, admittedly released over the course of like 10 years, so the quality has obviously not quite the same as what you'd expect, um, but the fact that I basically bought what would have been, I mean, games here in the UK go from 50 to £60, pounds, probably I'd say 50 so £150 worth of game for £6.50 is absurd. And only because they're you know, so uh, old. You know, they're maybe, I'd say, a decade old. The Witcher T Wild Hunt maybe came out 2012. And we just so happened yeah, to be right, yeah. the right time. The Witcher 1 came out in 2007. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, actually, The Witcher 1's the one I want to talk about the most because I've gotten into The Witcher 2. Um, very fun game. A um, bit different from what I was expecting. Not used to playing an RPG on a... a PC, which I might switch over to console controllers. 
depends mm. if I can get the uh, controller to work with the game. We'll see about that. It's the joy of PC gaming is just figuring out whether or not shit works. But I decided to play with uh, console control or PC controls totally different from what I'm used to. It's taking a lot of like getting used to all the button mapping. Um, I'm used to just having simple thumbsticks and then just maybe one or two extra button presses. This is a new thing for me to actually sit and learn this this type of gameplay. But I started with the first game because that's where you should start um, at the beginning. And I found it fucking unplayable. The very first game? Yeah. It is so old. I mean, the, the graphics themselves, actually not that bad. The intro uh, pre-rendered cinematic, gorgeous uh, for the time. Um, reminds me of like old... Do you remember, I think it's like Evil Dead or something like that? There's like an old pre-rendered cinematic of that one. And it's just like so different from gameplay. Um, once you get into the actual gameplay, it's that kind of old Lara Croft on the PS1, PS2 era polygon stuff. And you're like, oh my god, this is, this is a harsh contrast between the, the games and the pre-rendered cinematic. But at the same time... Are you time, talking about uh, old FMVs on the PS1 era? Not quite that bad. Not quite oh. as bad, but not far off of it as well. Um, it, it's more just that kind of. Do you remember you played uh, Red Faction? Yes. Yes, that type of like the difference between like Red Faction one cinematics and Red Faction one gameplay. That's where I'm kind of aiming at there. Or even Red Faction two. It's just a very high like the um the finished like the, the finished pre rendered cinematic is. Highly polished, fully kind of lighting effects. Small movie in effect. It's an animated movie. And then they cut the gameplay, which is obviously designed to be rendering in real time. And just the difference is so stark, it's kind of jarring. Um, but the the base characters, the base designs and stuff are all there. It's all very recognisable from the TV shows. Um, but I, I just... The actual gameplay controls, I don't know if I'm attacking or not. I genuinely don't know if I'm attacking when I, I left click on something and I can't figure out the timing and stuff. So I've jumped into the second one just to get a bit of a feel for it. It's a slightly more modern game. I think it was like another five years after the release of the first one. And yeah, I, I actually think The Witcher 2 came out a year after The Witcher 1. That's kind of impressive if that's the case. I'm going to go quickly check that. Cause no, four years after. That, that seems a bit more realistic because it's a whole new game engine. And the lighting's totally different. They're like, this is this can't be the same. So I I'm in the second one, it's different. Um again, like struggling to learn it as a as a used to be a console gamer playing on PC for the first time. But in terms of actual gameplay, it seems to be pretty solid. Um I've been I'm already like into the first castle and just about to get to the first big kind of plot twist. Um so I'm I'm not gonna talk any more about that because obviously the games are a totally different experience taking place after the uh majority of the series. Or in, ter- in fact, in terms of the, the books and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I know The the Witcher 1, 2, and 3 all take place well after the books. So, it's, uh, it's, I'm it's, not it's, the books. It's weird because I, I don't, I was looking at it going, I don't know where the games are supposed to be because I started the games before I finished the books, which was a mistake. I should have finished the books first and then gone into the, the games entirely blind or like with the entire story and how that wraps up, and then gone into the, the games separately. But uh, yeah, the TV show, I think it's fair to say, is quite widely regarded as a hit. I have people at work who are not nerds, like, oh my god, have you seen The Witcher yet? And I'm like, how are you the one telling, asking me about this? It should be the other way around. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's a massive Netflix show starring Henry Cavill, who is, for one of the 
one of the biggest uh, film stars of the year this, at this point. I mean, he's yeah, Superman. Yeah. I mean, he's Superman, but this is the, the project he's passionate about for some reason. Well, uh, he, he was Superman. I think at, this, at the time of recording, he is now finished with that, with that role. Uh, I think um, all plans that involved Superman in the DC extended or cinematic universe, whatever the fuck they called it, are now being rewritten to have Supergirl instead of Superman. And to be honest, it's only fair. You can't keep stringing someone along for the possibility of a film when <laughs> clearly DC are moving towards something else. But yeah. the fact that Henry Cavill's now steam, uh, steaming ahead with The Witcher, yeah, I think I think he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. The kid, he's got a hootspot. You know, he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, He'll figure it out in the end. He's showing up on Graham Norton next to Spider-Man and shit like that, talking about Warhammer. He'll be fine. I, I that is the other thing that gets me is not only is Henry Cavill a fucking nerd to the extreme of like building his own gaming PCs, he's a Warhammer gamer. Do you yeah. understand if you if you don't know what Warhammer is, it's because you're relatively normal. If you're that far down the rabbit hole, you know what Warhammer is. Welcome to the nerd zone, motherfucker. You also at this stage you need to be a fucking celebrity to afford Warhammer. Yeah. Shit's expensive. But yeah, this is uh Apparently a uh, Yaskier Warhammer nerd as well. Hmm. Interesting. It's I'm... one of those Netflix uh, interview shows that I watched on YouTube, and they were talking about uh, the armies that they build. Apparently, Henry Cavill is Custodes, and uh, Yaskier, whatever his name is, he's Necrons. Hmm. So... I mean, I guess. <laughs> it takes all sorts, I guess, but that now means yeah. that the Netflix set of The Witcher is the most insufferable place on the planet. Can you... <laughs> yeah. All it takes is one little conversation all of a sudden the entire day spent on the lore of Warhammer. And you're like, guys, we need to do some fucking work here. <laughs> Stop pulling out rule books. I don't care. <laughs> Get in front of that camera. Can say some lines. Can you imagine the director showing up to the set and they're just sitting pouring over books and like, who said Blackstone Fortress? <laughs> <laughs> Which one of you little shits started them off? <laughs> I don't know. You said probably the Emperor. You're fired. <laughs> I don't know, bro. Pretty sure Necron could take a Titan. <laughs> but anyway. You see how uh, quickly Warhammer fans can be distracted by the frivolities of the game. <laughs> That's why we say the Witcher set must be the worst on the planet. It just nothing gets done. Yeah, nothing. That's gets why done. each season of The Witcher takes so long to fucking come out. <laughs> it's just five months of arguing about Necrons. <laughs> Henry, no one gives a shit. Put your Ultramarines away. I don't care if Marinus Calgar can pick them up and break them over his knee. They're robots from space. <laughs> I used to imagine someone walks into set. It's a new character. They're all. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about one of the new characters, Nivellin, in a minute. You can imagine his first day on set. It's like, oh man, I'm really excited to get stuck into this new show. He arrives on set and everyone's sitting there with a head in their hands. Saying, well, what, what's wrong? Why is everyone so down? Someone mentioned Kyphus Kane and Henry went off for one. <laughs> <laughs> it's been five hours. He won't come out of his trailer. <laughs> he's, he's, he's made himself a literal soapbox. We can't, we can't bring him down. He's quoting page numbers. No one knows what book he's on about. It's just a fucking mess. <laughs> He has a guard, an Imperial Guard uniform. We don't know where they got that from. <laughs> we think he brought it from set, and he's talking about a las gun. Do you know what that might be? <laughs> Actually, I want to talk about uh, the, the episode with Nevelyn. Um, the first thing I really want to talk about is that I really love the episode A Grain of Truth. It is... Uh, oh, funnily enough, episode one. Yeah, fun enough. Uh, it's almost like I planned this. We, oh, oh, yeah. Not really, but you know. Did you spend the entire episode trying to figure out who the fuck Nivellin was played by? I caught it instantly and then forgot about I it. I didn't. And went back and watched it today and was sitting there scratching my head going, I know I figured out who this guy was and 
there was something about the pronunciation of certain phrases, and I was like, oh, it's Christopher, uh, have you? Uh, Tormund Giantsbane from Game of Thrones. Giving... I, I didn't figure that out until I watched uh, a clip on YouTube, and I was like, ah, I couldn't knew it was him. It's, uh, it's, once you see it, you're like, ah, really obvious. Um, and I'm not used to seeing, I think maybe actually seeing him without the beard made me yeah, less convinced. Yeah, threw me off. Because <laughs> for most of the episode, uh, he's playing, uh, with Nevelyn, who is a man crushed with the, uh, the, the bestial appearance of a, a werehog, I guess. Um, not, unfortunately, unlike the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, we're talking about, like, a, like, a boar, um, rather yeah. like a, a hot pig. Um, but yeah, he is basically cursed for uh, raping a priestess. And if that doesn't set the tone for the Witcher world, nothing fucking does. Because, um, having read the books, it's everything about this world is just unclean in a very, uh, like, in a way that you just become numb to. And I find that quite interesting as, as, as the story goes on. Is that, like, a character is, like, young and naive as Surrey who starts off as a literal child in the start of the books, is just so used to death and murder by the end of them, is like, it's like, oh, that's a shame that happens to this child. Like, that child deserves a little better. You know, they, yeah. they shouldn't have to be in such a shitty, shitty place. That was actually one thing that I wanted to kind of talk, wanted to talk about before we get into the, sort of the rundown of each episode. One thing I liked about season two, it steered, obviously it delved into it a little bit by Siri trying to prove herself and stuff like that, but they didn't instantly... Uh, Devolve into Siri being this whole. I can do it. I'm just as good as all these pink, these people, and being a complete brat about it. She actually starts fairly even. Like she does the trials and stuff like that, and she's just fairly even keel for most of it. She has a kind of wavers back and forth, but ultimately, Siri remains a fairly unbratty character. Siri in this series does a lot better than I'd say Siri in the books does. I'd say that yeah. the the book version, in fact, just in general, um. This world needs a lesson in shutting the fuck up and listening to Geralt. Because nine times out of ten, Geralt is not wrong. He might not be entirely right, but he's not wrong, by and large. And most characters seem to think, no, he's just a dumb witcher. Him dumb swordman, him not understand. It's like, no, you... Like, every wizarding and sorceress and magical person in this world is studying it and learning it because they know their survival depends on it. So when Geralt says, I think you should shut up, I need to listen to something. I'm trying to listen to the sound of a dragon's wings. Everyone in the party should shut the fuck down and shut the fuck up. And Siri is probably, in the books at least, is number one person in that franchise who needs to sit the fuck up. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. <laughs> and uh, I think the, the show has done a much better job of pushing through the bratty Siri phase, which is there for like a number of books, and just is pushing her forward to being a competent person. Which is great. I I really love that way of dealing with that character because she is insufferable for large portions of the books, well, at least to me anyway. But I have I have a certain like a certain way of like those characters get to me more than other more than others really should. But uh, yeah, bratty yeah. characters just. I can see they're they're doing their damnedest to try and stave it off for a little bit. But if you're saying it's in the books, it's kind of coming a mile away. No, no, no. Actually, we've, we've, I think in terms of like once she gets to Kermoran. And is starting the Witcher training. She is from then on more reasonable, more responsible. It's the journey to Kermorn up until that point, which takes longer in the books. That's when she's a pain in the ass. Ah, right. So yeah. we're we're now past it. Hopefully, actually, she gets to have her own little adventure later on that I'm really looking forward to because it's 
uber competent like survivalist Siri. And I'm just like, oh, this is this is nice. This is a nice change of pace for a female character that's like technically born a princess. You know, um, she is much better than you're gonna you're gonna enjoy her more the more the show goes on. Yeah, but yeah, um, him, Siri, and another character that we'll talk about later, um, both need a slap in the face and told to sit the fuck down. From what I've read, I've only read a bit of the first book. And even that kind of sets up that everyone needs to shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down. Because so much of this can be solved by just listening to the people that know better than you. <laughs> or not thinking you know more than the guy actually holding a sword. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, you guy who hunts monsters, shut, stop. Like, what do you think you know about monsters? You just kill them. It's like, how do you think he knows how to kill them? Dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, in terms of like Nivellin... Um, just to get back to uh, the a grain of truth, um, this in this story is actually taken right from the books. Um, they just have a a brief encounter with a monster, or seemingly a monster, trapped at the edge of the woods, and it turns out it's actually no friend of Geralt's, uh, who's befallen a curse that he deserves. I'll be honest. Um, yeah. And he's been cursed. I think at the point of the uh, the show, he's been cursed for about twelve years. So he's been stuck, just sitting there, thinking and drinking himself half to death, realising he can't die. Um, and then just sitting, pondering the nature of his existence. And I really like how philosoph- uh, philosophical he is. Like, he's just sitting there, like, bemoaning his fate, and then just living off the, the riches he has. Um, yeah. I don't think they really bring it up in the show, but at one point, he attacks a man, uh, or he, like, charges at a guy, the same way he does to Geralt. The guy begs for his life, and then ultimately gets brought in for, like, a dinner. And he's just, oh, you want to sit and talk to me? It'd be nice to have some company. And he, like, uh, Neville gives him a ton of cash. Oh, thank you, thank you for your, your, for joining me for dinner. Have this packet of gold on your way. And eventually, like, people start bringing him young daughters to spend time with him. And it's like, it goes into detail about how he just bangs the lot of them. And you're like, oh my god, you horny bastard. <laughs> And he just, like, enjoys their company. And there's, like, seven women or something that he bangs like that. Um, until he ends up meeting Verena, who's the other, the monster of the uh, the episode, which is his vampire wife. Uh, there's another name for it. I've forgotten it. I forgot to take a note of it. But it's essentially a form of vampire. Like Bruxa or something like that, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it's a it's kind of psychic uh, and sonorous-based vampire that's uh, really... It's a weird new take on it. Or it's a weird new... I say new take. Uh, most of the Witcher series is based on fairy tales, urban legends, and uh, myths from uh, old history from Europe, uh, mostly. There's a lot of Polish and Slavic monsters in there, uh, mostly because the writer Andrzej Zarkowski is, you know, Polish. So a lot of his culture steeps into the, the myths of the Witcher, which is nice. I like it. Um, adds a little bit of flavour compared to something like Game of Thrones, just you know, written by an American, imagining... Fantasy Europe going to war with itself. Yeah, uh, I think it is a Bruxa. Um, played by Agnes Bourne, who I've never seen before in anything, but she's really good. I forgot how good it was. Like, seeing her scamper upside down on top of the roof. Like, she's a horror villain character who just gets, like, a brief cameo in an episode, but totally fantastic. So, like, unnervingly creepy. Like, I really enjoyed watching her on screen. I uh, found her eyes quite creepy. Very unsettling. 
Well, yeah, the eyes are a big part of the series. Um, everyone is wearing contacts to the point where I feel bad for them. I mean, they must have been filming for like hours on end wearing eye contacts that are massive, covering the whole eye to give like purple eyes and yellow eyes. I mean, Henry Cavill's yeah. walking around with cat's eyes for like yeah. eight hours a day. As someone who wears contacts, I can't imagine having to go through an entire 12-hour workday with contacting. Painful. At least mine's are, my contacts are proper contacts, soft contacts. The, the ones that change your eye colour don't do anything except narrow your field of vision. Yeah. It's not a... It, it works. It really does work for the show and it helps a lot of the characters and really sets out the main characters. <laughs> it must be impossible for anyone to like kind of sneak anywhere. I mean, Jennifer Vingerberg is uh, purple eyes. Girl has <laughs> cat's eyes. Uh, Siri has it's it's green in the show, but it's like a really like ocean like really light pale blue, um, in the books I think. And I was like, huh? How is how is any how do any of you sneak anywhere? You're so immediately yeah. identifiable. You get caught immediately. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty cool because even in the, even in the games the. The only one that I've played, The Witcher 3, everyone's eyes kind of set them apart. Even the Witchers have different... Most of them still have yellow eyes, but quite a few of them have sort of different paler shades of yellow, brighter shades of yellow. If you notice on Vesemir, his are kind of more deeper set yellow, which I thought was a nice little attention to detail. And it's good to see that even the books kind of draw attention to the eyes as well. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going in there. I mean, especially The Witchers being uh, products of weird science and sorcery, I guess. Um, there's a lot of times where people like sorcerers are like we don't know how witches are made. Could we study you? And he's like, "What do you mean study?" And like, "Oh no, when you die, can we have your body so we can take it apart for like a dissection and like an, an autopsy?" And we just, we just they're mostly interested in the eyes because they think they can make humans see in the dark if they just give them witcher eyes. I'm like, w- what? <laughs> this is really like not how any of this works. <laughs> I I suffered to get these. The trial of the grasses is no way. Your eyes. <laughs> you can't just pull this out and shove it in someone's head. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, the, the, I'm glad they touched on the trial. The trial of the grasses being no joke whatsoever. Was yeah. it one in twelve? Three in children ten. Survive? Three in ten children survived the trial of the grasses, and then I think they say, "Oh, maybe four in ten If it's a good year, you're like, "Damn, <laughs> this is <laughs> savage society." I enjoy this. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, like horrible things to get done to witchers to make them into who they are. And uh, Geralt has gone above and beyond that to another level. That's why he's singled out. Um, apparently he's done other surgeries. I've not actually read into what those are. But he has apparently been uh, working on extra levels of witcher mutation and would have received further stuff if it wasn't for the downfall of the witchers as a group. Yeah. But yeah, episode one, A Grain of Truth. Fantastic part of the books. Great part of the, the show. I really enjoy the fact that they deal with the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Sodden, which is the end of season one. Yeah. And I, it was mostly through, uh, I'm going to get her name wrong, Tessaia, I think. Yeah, Tessaia. You got a name right. Yeah. Uh, Tessaia, who is uh, one of Jennifer uh, Vingerberg's like, mentors. She is uh, another one of the sorceresses. And she's going through the Battle of Sodden, like, looking at the corpses and trying to go back into their memories to try and find Yennefer. Because uh, Yennefer has gone missing during the, the course of the battle. And she's touching these like bodies, and she's like piecing together the last moments of the battle, trying to find where Yennefer went. And she's like touching different faces and stuff. And you see the most brutal up close kills, like first person <laughs> stabbing, I guess, <laughs> first person shooter, first person stabber uh, action scenes. And it's that's honestly the most reassuring thing to me because 
the series is incredibly violent, and it needs to be because the books are incredibly violent. Um, mm. I'm reading, or I'm listening to uh, Season of Storms, and there is a um, a vivid description of what happens when an ogre with an axe goes through a small mining village, and there's not a lot left. And listening to stuff or seeing that scene, I'm like, okay, they could actually pull off the stuff that's required in the later parts of the books because it's not going to be clean. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and and that's what I kind of like about The Witcher is it's even even with Game of Thrones, you could tell that they were there was gore, but there wasn't that much gore. I mean, they went overboard in a few scenes, but <laughs> there was still the gore was kind of well contained. And this, you know, they're willing to get a bit gory. Yeah. You, you reminded that everyone is carrying swords, swords do damage. How much damage? This much damage. And then just throw guts everywhere. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I don't have many notes for the first episode. I actually don't have many notes for many of the episodes, just the general broad beats, because with uh, a lot of these fantasy series, a lot of The Witcher is travel, and it's kind of downtime yeah. between big story points. The one thing, that, I'm quite glad that you mentioned travel, because one thing that bugged me quite a lot is that people just seem to pop up in places. Right, uh, for example, with Yennefer, after she goes through a big plot point, I think it's in episode three or something like that, where she's with the, where she meets the woman in the hut and she's there with Francesca and Frangilla. She just kind of appears at a uh, shit. What's the name of the mage stronghold? Gordon, help me, please. Artusa, right? Uh, she just appears. Just one point, she's going. I need to get to Artusa. Next thing you know, she's walking through the door. And she's talking to Stregobor and uh, Virgafolt. Yeah. Characters who can portal. She's lost her chaos at this point. Spoilers. But, you know, we're we're putting the spoiler tag everywhere in this episode. She's lost her chaos. She can't portal. How does she get there so quickly? I get that there needs to be some kind of suspension of disbelief. You know, how would she get there? You just need to kind of let it happen, I suppose. But it just, for me, it was a bit weird. She's with other characters that could make the portal for her. No, this is when she's on her own. Oh. Hmm. Oh, yeah, because they get popped out of the, the illusion sooner than others. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Frangilla and Francesca go to a different place. Mm. Uh, they go back to whichever city series the princess of. And yeah. uh, Yennefer gets popped out somewhere else. She kind of continues on, on her own for a bit longer. Yeah, there's there's a lot of places where characters, especially ones that can portal, just pop up out of nowhere. And given that most of the cast is magic users, it's a lot of different characters that just kind of pop up where they need to be. And I, I yeah, like. I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm very much cool with that. But just with with Siri, not Siri, with Yennefer and another character who, as far as I know, doesn't have magic. It, they just kind of appear places. The, the the main one is the main thing I, I use the portals for is literally just to say. All these people can fly around and do whatever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want, and the only one who doesn't have that advantage is Geralt, and that grounds him and makes him a bit more gritty, more kind of human, more relatable, whereas he can't just, you know, open a portal, jump through, do what he needs, and then jump back, you know, in the space of a minute. Although, even though he could do that if he had the, the power to, you know, use the portals. Yeah. It's, it, like, he, he hates portals. He actually hates portals to the point where he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Doing the portal travel makes him physically sick. And uh, actually, they discuss uh, the first time, uh, the, the book I'm reading uh, discusses the first time he saw a portal transfer, and somebody got basically teleported, or at least half of them did, and the other half remained where it was. And uh, he had to mop up the remains. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, 
<laughs> no, I just, that's the first time you said like first time you ever got in a car and like ten people died. You're like, oh shit. <laughs> but, you're oh. but yeah, it's um like the, the the travel aspect of it does result in a lot of people just showing up where the the story needs them to be, and I find that kind of annoying. But it's um, it wasn't enough to make me, you know, stop watching. But like, now, nah, man, this is weird. But it's just it kind of playing in the back of my head. Like, how would they just appear in so quickly? It does kind of make sense though, because if you were running a international group of mages that covers half a continent, the first thing you would teach all the mages is how to portal. Yeah, just for efficiency's sake, like just fuck this, getting on like a cor- getting on a horse and doing all this nonsense. Let's just everybody jump in a portal, go where we need to do, do what we need to do, and then just you know off with us, like we just disappear in five minutes rather than actually travel months on horseback. Because I think that's what gives the mages a bit of an advantage when it comes to being. Um, I guess intelligence officers and like secret spies and stuff is that they can just jump from one court to another in a matter of seconds. You could just portal from one castle to another, and you know, they they were there's a mention in the book that someone says, "Hey, couldn't this be used for diplomacy?" And everybody's like, "Nobody actually trusts the mages enough to carry diplomatic missions," <laughs> and they're certainly not going to let them teleport kings to go visit each other. That's going to get nasty quick. But I do like the, the use of sorcerers in the, the world, mostly just because of their, uh, they've got a kind of scientific nature of magic, it's not like, oh, we'll behold the magical great flame, it's, it's like, no, we need to figure out what magic actually is, how it impacts the world, and how we can use it ourselves, and then to, in some cases some people want to make a better world, but some people are like, how do I make a profit off of this? Yeah. It's a very real thing to add into the world. That was one, that was one of the major things that I appreciated about it, is it's not the, it's not the case that, like you said, all the mages are just like, we worship the magic conch shell, and the magic conch shell tells us to buy cryptocurrency. <laughs> they actually, there's a bit of a, there's a scientific approach to it, and there's a, there's theory behind uh, the use of chaos, which I don't know, is, is chaos a thing for the show, or is that in the books as well? Um, I, I think it's mostly just referred to, I can't remember if it was referred to as chaos in the in the books, can't remember for some reason, but yeah, the, the idea that there's like the magical forces that are at play in the world. That's yeah. generally referred to as either some kind of chaos or just magical force, but there's there's different theories on it and how it all comes to be and how it comes together and how it works. But it's it's because there's scientists or there's people theorizing and breaking it down and testing yeah. and doing different methods to actually figure out what's going on in the world. Yeah, like a huge part of the first season is Stregobor trying to hunt down women born under the black sun because mm-hmm. they have you know natural profinity or prof- a natural affinity, should I say, uh, for chaos and things like that. So it shows you that there's a bit more of a theory to it as opposed to, you know, where I'm, I'm going to keep comparing this to Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones now feels like a very shit Witcher. Um, <laughs> and it's the only thing. The, the Witcher were just like, no, really this is what I wanted. To. Fuck Game of Thrones. It's the only thing we can really compare it to because it's the only multi season uh, fantasy, you know, genre thing starting like, you know, with serious effort behind it. Nobody's yes. making something this big, this fantastical anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And but, but what I like about that is you talk about the the, uh, the Black Sun theory, and remember that's based off of a prophecy. So there's weird scientific, there's weird like mumbo jumbo about children born beneath the Black Sun shall bear golden crowns and bring about the the end of times and the, the dawning of a new age of bloodshed. And somebody goes and goes, okay, let's go find out what's going on with these girls. See if there's any we can identify as being born under the Black Sun. And then they go find them, one of them happens to die or gets killed, they take the top of her head off, and while doing an autopsy, as in a scientific experiment on a dead body, 
they find that she has a strange structure inside her skull that's the golden crown. And they go, oh shit, that prophecy, that mumbo jumbo, may actually have some, like, meaning to it. Like, there's a genuine, there's a thing we can find and you to identify people that might be involved in this curse of the Black Sun and we might need to scientifically or, you know, forensically investigate people involved in this situation. It's that weird blending of uh, fantasy and magic and mumbo jumbo with a kind of grounded approach to the world that's is very unique to the Witcher. You there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still there. Um, double drink of water. It, I, it's it's one of the things. It, we won't say the Witcher does everything perfectly. Like I said, the there are some like downsides to it. Like this season specifically, we seem to focus. We don't really settle on one kind of key thing. We're kind of trying to pick up strands of each different each different story. Like there's there's new there's new elves to consider. There's a, a you know, yeah. There's the elves at the beginning of the war. It's it's a setup season, really. Um, knowing where the story goes, the only thing I can say that can really offer you some comfort is this is a setup season. This is the beginning of uh the big war that's going to make the next couple of seasons very interesting. Yeah, that, that that was the point I was trying to get to. But I, you know, I'll preface this by saying that I'm battling a migraine right now. So if the words don't come out like they should. Blame the headache. Uh, I feel like I should put that disclaimer to every single one of our episodes. Just Dom wasn't feeling well when he made this episode, so don't blame him if he sounds like a fucking idiot. But I, like you said, it, it does feel very much like a setup series because season one grabbed you from the get go with the intertwining stories and you know trying to figure out well if Siri met this person here and that person's dead now, but we've already seen Geralt talking to this person in another episode. We must know that Ciri's kind of walking forward to a certain point and Geralt's trying to catch up so you're seeing it from the past and Geralt's perspective but the future from Ciri's uh, and that kind of hooks you immediately but this one seems a bit more uh, season 2 seems a bit more pedestrian I want to say yeah it's a bit more normal there's a lot more travel a lot more setup, a lot more we're going to meet this character they're going to be more important in the future but you're going to get in this episode in, in this season the middle of the, the middle season we're getting more about Geralt because you hear about maybe Geralt was a bit more uh, studious and stuff like that when he, he goes to meet the that group of mages that are that give Ciri that weird orb. Yeah, the, the at the temple. Yeah, yeah, and you find out from uh, the the leader of that temple that you know Geralt was you know very studious, very like good student, and you get to find out more little things about the backstory and there's other little setup pieces that you you find out. Yeah, and the, the the I think what they're trying to build, it's going to be a key point of the actual storyline, is they're trying to build the the group, the core group, the core trinity of um, Yennefer, Geralt, and Ciri as a family. And I'll talk about that more later, but it's something you can't do with a f- like fun scenes, unfortunately, something you can do with like big action scenes. It's something you do with the little moments. And one of the big takeaways from this is um, Geralt and Ciri have a really good kind of uh, father-daughter chemistry that works, I think, works really well. I think the actress for Sari deserves a lot of that because she's very good this season. I didn't really think she was that good last season, but she was a lot younger. Yeah, and also she, I think 90% of, I think her name's Freya Allen, uh, 90% of her stage direction was just, and stand there and shit yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Stand there and go, "Ah." Stand there and look, Fucking terrified. Sandra's like, Geralt, help me. 
<laughs> occasionally scream and break the whole thing. But uh, in this, she gets a lot more to do. I think the best thing that they do for Siri is, you know, teach her how to fight. Because she does a lot of training. A lot of training. This feels like Dragon Ball Z in a couple of episodes. Yeah, she's so much fucking training. <laughs> she spends whole episodes just getting this shit kicked over by wooden uh, wooden paddles, and uh, yeah. apparently, I, I, actually, did you clubs. watch the behind the scenes stuff? I watched some behind the scenes stuff. There's a thir- obviously Netflix does a lot of behind the scenes stuff for this because it's a big production and they can milk it for a bit more money if they show you behind the scenes. They have a thirty-seven minute uh, just discussion of what went on behind the scenes, and apparently the actress loved it. And when you see some of the shots they pull off, I mean. There's one where they've got a camera guy jumping off at the same time with Siri as she's being thrown into, like, she's getting knocked around by the machine. And it's him jumping with a camera, holding it perfectly in focus, and you're like, that guy is fucking badass for doing that. <laughs> holding about 20 grand worth of camera equipment, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine just jumping off, like, being told, hey, you're going to jump 12 feet, uh, but you're holding the deposit for a house. Don't drop it. <laughs> you're going to make a 20 foot vertical leap but you're just going to be holding at least you know 120 kilograms worth of equipment and this equipment could buy you a car so just yeah. don't let that affect your performance try not to think about that as we <laughs> but don't worry as you fall down we'll be pulling up on wires to help you balance yourself i'll be like oh fuck that shit <laughs> uh but yeah there's a lot of like really impressive stuff like the show's commitment to physical effects and like practical effects is really impressive because there's some dodgy CGI in places. Um, I don't know if you caught a few bits and pieces. There's a lot of uh, background shots that are green screen that can't really yeah. be helped. I don't expect you to go and find the exact replica of the place in the real world. And they do a lot with yeah. big sets as well, which I like. Um, but there's some stuff. There was one. It was a, a pull up shot from I think it was the Wizards, uh, the home base that you were talking about earlier. They pull up that, and the entire like surface is clearly CG. And then there's a balcony that's a practical effect, and it sticks out so much. And I immediately saw it. I was like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> it's like episode one or two or something. I was like, "Oh, what did you do?" But it must be episode two because I watched episode one today. I didn't yeah. see it. For me, none of the effects have been as bad as the dragon from uh, season one. <laughs> uh, the gold dragon was not great in my opinion. Uh, they do they do their best uh, yeah. for getting Kerr Morin looking as good as it does. I will. I will. Very much except the weird looking chimera and a couple other weird shots. Uh, yeah, but it, it's it's not the. I think the 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 biggest draw of the show for me anyway is just character interaction, how the characters talk to each other, mm. and just watching. Obviously, the fight scenes are obviously the big draw. Obviously, the big draw. But what's going to keep you going is is how characters talk to one another and how they interact with, you know, the developing situation and with each other. Yeah. I think it's it's another massive hook of the show. Yeah, actually, I didn't know about Kermorn, and I it's a mostly a practical effect, uh, mostly like a practical set that was built and designed to be lived in partially, and it was, but it's practically lit. Like all those fires are there; they're all real. Um, can, really... can I live in Kermorn? Hmm? I will convert my I will convert my house to like Kermorn. That place was cool as fuck. Yeah, and, and the best part is, it looks like partially abandoned, like it's. But it's haunted by the few remaining like witchers, and yep. you just you hate seeing it. You're like, oh my god, this could have been such a such a, a great place to be. It's heyday, but you never yep. see that. I will say that there is uh, there's an animated film called Nightmare of the Wolf, which is um, a pre. It's actually um, what's his name, Vesemir's uh, not quite origin story, but it's how Vesemir becomes the the leader of the witchers. 
And I, it's, it's his kind of one of his big stories. Although I suppose we can get, get talk about that a bit later. Get into that a bit later because I was not a massive fan of that movie, to be honest. It's uh, it's, it's interesting to see that part of the the story of the world because the world is so dense. Like you, you just you you can just focus on what you're being shown in the TV show or what you're reading in the books, and that's about as much as you can like focus on at any one point. So getting more information is like a nice little extra layer, but. That's probably the most you see of Kaer Morin at its peak, in the glory days. Yes. And even then, it's the end of days. Yeah, that's, that's true, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. But How like, that film looks is going to uh, going to attract you more to the film, as opposed to the story behind it. Because you know Vesemir survives. It's going to be fairly low stakes. Yeah. yeah but a, still, it, it's animated by Studio Madhouse, I think. No, it was not Madhouse. It was a different studio, because I went and looked it up. It was a Korean studio, actually. All right. Studio Mir. Studio Mir, right. Yeah, if it was Madhouse, you'd see me screaming. <laughs> like, right. Oh my god, I love a Madhouse video. Uh, or Madhouse footage. Always fascinating to watch. But the, yeah, Studio Mir, I think they did a, a decent job with the animation of it. I really enjoyed the way the, the fight choreography goes and that. But yeah, as far as the story goes, could give a shit. Um, but the, the actual setting of uh, Care Morn is very interesting to see when there's a bit more populated because... As say during the Witcher show itself, it's kind of quiet. It's very dr- dr- drab, I guess, is the phrase. But it's not a fun place to be. But at the same time, it looks like it might have been great once. Yeah. Same with the uh, Vesemir in general. We talk about like a great character interaction, like seeing Geralt grow as a father for Ciri, and then seeing yeah. Vesemir being the father or being some kind of proxy of a father to Geralt. Even though, like, if you look into what you know, he was required to do to train Geralt. Like oh my god, what a shitty really, what a shitty father he must have been. But seeing him like trying to keep it all together, you're like oh, if you were, if you just got to live in the heyday, if you just got to be who you are now during the great days of the Witchers, you'd be like a great king or a great leader. But you're kind of the last of the dying breed, and you're just kind of stuck being the last man on the ramparts. You know? Yeah. Vesemir, I think, might actually be my favorite character in season two. He, just talking about general casting, they perfected Vesemir. He looks exactly like he just jumped, just jumped out of the games. And mm. even descriptions from what I read in the book, they got that spot on. Uh, and just how he acts around the other witchers, like very, very protective of them. Just kind of, you know, I've raised these guys. I've made, I'm going to make sure these guys survive. And in the episode with the, the Leshy, yeah. when it infects Eskel, the, how obvious his sort of anguishes when he sees him all infected and like we could have saved him and stuff but no you you did what had to be done let's not pretend for a second that you know I would have done any different yeah, this is the only way to how... end this fight is with one of your brothers dead in the ground yeah and that was another thing that I praised the show for doing you usually get like oh man we could have fucking saved him you're an asshole but now it's like no you did what had to be done we could have saved him but you know you stopped another couple of uh, witchers from dying so good choice in my book yeah, the universe. It's my least favorite device in any kind of thing. Like yeah. we, we spoke about He-Man, how they just oh you killed my dad, you're a dick. And like yeah, but your dad was a zombie. <laughs> he needed to die. There's a pragmatism to the Witchers that is, it's a little off-putting to people who like the normal people in that world who, you know, want to talk about how much they love people and how much they want to hug people and just how they feel a human connection. And the Witchers don't have that, and it makes them seem a little bit evil 
to the rest of the world, but you're looking at it going, you know what, fair call. <laughs> I hate to be the one to do it myself, but yeah, you know, if, if I need the job done, I ask for a witcher. I don't ask for the baker. Um, I think on the... Actually, one thing I want to talk about, you talk about travel and character interactions. I like that the gang is not all together for most of the show, because that's how it is for the books. And it is... Most of the books follow Siri, bit of Yennefer, and Geralt. And it just they just so happen to bump into different characters at different times. It's not always the whole gang is out riding together on their epic quest. It's just a bunch of people bumping into each other at different points in their life. My key point, my key point for that was uh, Yaskier, who basically just he disappears for whole chunks of the books because you know he's a bard. He has his own way of earning money and making a living. He has to go out performing. He has to be in the town, learning the local like language, local slang, making songs about it getting his money so he can pay for his rent and his food and stuff. And there's points where Yaskier can actually just go and be making his own money and then if another character meets him in a shitty situation, he'll look out for that other character like another part of the crew. But they don't always hang out together. It's not like a and d party where the bard is always, for some reason, going into the catacombs with the paladin, you know? Yeah. It's uh, it's, a, it's an interesting way of doing it and it's, it's important to keep it that way because it means that your, your group dynamic stays fresh when it comes and to the he... character interaction. Yaskier gets he gets a little bit of time with everybody. He he's you first see him and he's given uh Yennefer a lot of shit because, you know, as far as he's concerned, she's just some kind of evil witch thing. And then when he re uh reconvenes with uh Geralt, he just keeps giving him shit like, Oh, remember where you left me? You left me on top of a mountain, dig. <laughs> and he's just constantly ripping into him for that. I, I love that scene where the, he finds him in the jail cell and he's just it's like a five-minute Yaskier tirade of, motherfucker, I was on top of a mountain, and these boots, I slid down that mountain, I didn't get to walk down there. <laughs> you left for me for dead and told me to go fuck myself. Why don't you go fuck yourself? I love you. Hug. <laughs> and you're like, that's such a bro moment. I love it. It's <laughs> I gotta bust your balls for five minutes, but after that, hug it out, bro. Come on. <laughs> do you want to get some scrambled eggs and bacon? Let's go do that shit. <laughs> I'm gonna continue to bust your balls while we eat. <laughs> One thing I actually found that in the behind the scenes stuff, he actually deliberately wrote a less catchy song this time. Hmm. Because Toss a Coin to Your Witcher still haunts him to this day. The actor that plays Yaskier. I suppose there's enough dumb people on the planet that you would walk down and be like, you Toss a Coin to Your Witcher when you see him in the street. Yeah. <sighs> just so he, he couldn't get away from it. Tries him out, he just couldn't get away from it. Yeah, it's also a lot harder to sing as well. Like that opening song I was listening to, I was like, this isn't as. Poppy is the producer, and like he's obviously like it's. I don't know if they wanted to make some of it more intense to make it yeah. harder to reproduce, or if they wanted to show uh, dandelion. Or I say that I've been listening to audiobooks too much. To point something out, actually, Yaskier in the TV show is chosen for the name because that's the name in Polish, and that's because yeah. when you translate it from Polish to English, it becomes dandelion, or in certain audiobooks, dandelion. It's a genuine controversy in the fandom whether or not it's dandelion or dandelion. I know, it's fucking stupid. But if you talk to Witcher fans, they are genuinely quite annoyed by the idea that it's dandelion. I mean, it's clearly dandelion. If for no other reason than you can't have Henry Cavill standing there just mean-mugging a guy called dandelion. That's a bit iffy. So the, the, the TV show calls him Yaskier instead, which is a much better name and actually quite a badass name. I mean, part of me kind of wants the little shit. Part of me wants, uh, wants them to, or wanted them to call him Dandelion and just have 
Henry Cavill doing that gruff, deep, uh, riveted voice and just go, Dandelion. <laughs> I, <laughs> I guarantee you that's like. a blooper somewhere. It's <laughs> just him calling him Dandelion. <laughs> Get a move on, Dandelion. Just smack him upside the head. <laughs> Hit him with a palm of the sword and call him Dandelion. <laughs> I mean, if, if you do that, I think that classifies as bullying, but you know. Yeah, a little bit. From the little that I've played of The Witcher 3, Andalan just gets bullied anyway. He kind of does it to himself in a certain way. And if you want me to talk about Dandelion, I will, ask you, I will do. Um, but mostly, when I talk about Siri being a brat, yeah. Yaskir is a lot worse. A lot worse. To the point where I'm visibly angry listening to the audiobooks in the gym, being like, just hit him. <laughs> Girl, just hit him in the face. Take the sword, smash him in the face. Don't want to cut him with it, just smash him in the face. <laughs> fuck him up, G, fuck him up. <laughs> he's, he spends entire chapters of the book. And I quite like it because it's, it is part of their uh, odd couple friendship that they have. And that Geralt wants to be left alone. And I think Yaskier physically cannot stop himself from talking. And he gets tangential. He discusses other things. Like one conversational path. But Geralt asks for information. What do you know about this? And all of a sudden, it's, it's, he's on and on and on and on about different local lords and different people who know other people and how he knows them and how he's actually got a cousin in the neighbourhood that's actually related to someone else. We should go visit there. And they actually have a very nice eel pie over there. And Geralt has to stop and say, I asked you where the king might be. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> and it's, it's part of their character is that he can't stop talking. And it contrasts so well with this big brooding mountain that is Geralt. But at the same time, on the top list of people who I want to punch in the face is Yaskia. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is actually a credit to the actor. Because you're doing a very effective performance if I hate you in writing and in person. You know? Yeah. I uh, suppose that's always the sign of a good character. If you if he's meant to be annoying and he annoys you so much, I suppose the actor's done their job, I guess. Yeah. It, it's the, in terms uh... of new characters, they kind of... They they introduced a few new characters this season. They introduced uh, the rest of the elves, like Francesca and the rest of those elves that are looking to retake uh, Sintra. Yeah. Who I could take or leave for most of the season and then they pull out the, quite frankly, Chad move of just child murder at the end of it. <laughs> you want to get back at someone, yeah, cast a spell that kills all the children. Yeah, mass child murder with, with a click of your fingers. Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> As a giant middle finger to everyone involved, pretty impressive. It was, uh, I mean, we could talk about the, the elven refugees. I quite like the, um, the attention it's paid to Nilfgaard because most of the books having the perspective of characters that are just on the ground, just normal people like Geralt and Ciri and Yennefer, they don't have access to Nilfgaard. But seeing their part of the war is quite impressive. It's a good balancing act to help build up a bit of attention because you know who's getting involved on the other side, you know how serious they're taking it, um, it does result in you getting a lot of uh, different spoilers, a lot earlier than maybe needs be uh, yeah. than I'd say for example, uh, Emperor Emir being revealed, this soon is a massive, like, what the fuck moment um, yeah. It's it, that's like one of the last things that comes up in the books, because no one has access to the Emperor because he's the Emperor of a foreign rival power and it seems like he's you're never going to get to him, and it just so happens to be revealed towards maybe the end of like the second to last book 
or as part of the last book itself, who Emperor Amir is, and yet we've had it spoiled in season two of the TV show that may go on for like three to seven seasons, maybe or four to seven yeah. seasons. I'd had a similar thing with uh, the Wild Hunt because again, as far as I know, the Wild Hunt are kind of the boogeymen. They're hinted at and they're spoken about very, very frequently, but you never actually get to see them. Seeing yeah. the full consignment of the wild hunt riding towards the portals, you kind of blown your wad about early. Then. They're hinted at in middle books, and it's they're more treated as like an urban legend. That's kind of like oh, yeah, like the, the boogeyman. Yeah, when they're actually shown up and revealed in like the last book, it, what they are and what's going on with them is the biggest fucking spoiler of the entire book. And I'm like, hmm, okay, we're, we're hinting at it this early. I wouldn't say what we've seen so far is a spoiler or anything. Hmm. You can interpret from that scene what you will, but you've not really been shown that much about what's going on. You know the basic premise of there being a wild hunt of horsemen galloping through the land. That's all you really need to know for the next couple of books. Yeah. I mean, just from you having the parts of The Witcher 3, it just makes me think they're meant to be they, I mean, knowing that the Wild Hunt show up so far after the end of the books and that's when you have the fight with uh, I think Caranthia is one of them shit like that, it just felt a bit too, a bit too early for me but uh, if you're saying that they they're there, showing them isn't too much of a spoiler, that kind of puts me easy a little bit because I know that they're following the books a lot closer than people give them credit for. There's still a bit of variation here and there, but they're following the books fairly closely from what I know, anyway. The, you the, may know different, I haven't read them all. It's kind of like in Game of Thrones, how they talk about the Army of the North, like the, the, the undead, mm-hmm. where you have like this ominous force that's building in the background, and I guess showing it from time to time might be enough to keep that kind of clock ticking over in your head of like, oh no, this like we're having these conflicts down here, but also up there or away elsewhere. There's another force ready to come in. And I think yeah. that might be what they're trying to do. Alright, can I show them early and say bear in mind these guys might show up and then just have them murmur and work in the background type of thing. Yeah. It depends how they use but them. Hopefully it. do it a bit better than they did with the White Walkers. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't blow your own one episode with that one, please. Um, yeah. Actually, you can't... If don't have fucking Yaskier or some shit kill Karanthia. Just smash him in the face with a look. Ooh, it was surprisingly easy. Carol, <laughs> you can do that, you fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a weird reveal this early in the show, but I think it's quite. Um, I think if handled correctly, it can be fine. <laughs> uh, I I don't know if they will, but we'll see. Um, thinking of other plot points, actually talking about the the Nilfgaardian Guardian side of things, um, from Gila Vigo. Um, the Delph Guardian Sorceress. Her scenes this this episode were or this season were pretty good. Um, yeah, Frangilla, she was out for fucking blood this <laughs> yeah. season, and it was it was pretty good. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, we talked about like the uh, the the sorcerers being scientific, but you it really needs to be said they are ruthless and ambitious. Yeah. They are trying to scheme and plot and take over the world, but as the power behind the throne rather than the power on the throne. And Fringilla's... I kind of hope that Fringilla survives longer than Kahir because Kahir was this kind of badass character in season one, season two. It's just, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> but what are you got going on with that shit beard you call? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it's um. Shouldn't be out of crazy eyes, man. Go <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, we're talking about the the elven side of things. The elven uh the elven units are very important, um, mostly for the the upcoming war that we talk about, um, because that's that's what all this is building to is that uh, Nilfgaard versus the North round two, like the all out war that takes place. Uh, what we saw at the end of season one is the opening skirmish. So the elven units, uh, especially elves within the North, becoming their own faction is a big part of the the storyline of the war but not so much for Geralt and Ciri and all that. They actually form like commando units and are called the Squirrels or it's the Squirtail or Squirtail um, mm. that are like key to Nilfgaard's plan because they're obviously they're guerrilla units, they're elves, they're obviously amazing archers and they are ruthless and they hate the North because the North hates them. Um, I think a lot of the, what's coming through, it is kind of coming through I guess with some of the show is the racism involved like from humans to non-humans is really bad in the books um for example the word pogrom comes up several times and it's not out of place what's happening to non-humans word is what, sorry? pogrom pogrom it's a race riot it's a riot that oh, takes right. place where like typically associated with jewish people but you have a group of non-jews throwing a riot targeting the riot at jews and using it to kill they say oh it was just a riot got out of hand and Coincidentally, we burned all these Jewish shops and hung all these Jewish people. And they're using the same term against non-humans in the Witcher series, and it's, it's true. It's what's happening. It's just mass race riots, just humans versus dwarves or humans versus elves. It's like a serious problem with the North and humans in general. But it's uh, it's all actually tying in quite well with the overarching uh, like plot of the Witcher universe, which is that you know the, the world we're seeing is the elven world. Um, like, it was originally owned by the elves, the dwarves, and the gnomes, who were the sentient races, and then you get the conjunction, which is mentioned during the course of the show, where you have multiple planes of existence just shoving into each other. And yeah. one of the things that happens is that you get humans. And, uh, yeah, the humans come in, take over, and destroy the planet. You know, hmm, I wonder what that's a metaphor for. Hmm. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty grim in terms of what they show and what they discuss and the angle they take towards conquerors and colonialists and, you know, people making empires on the backs of mountains of corpses. And all of those characters happen to be human. Yes. Uh, I, I, I'm probably mispronouncing the name, but Sapkowski made this with very clear inspirations in mind for some races. Like, the, the Nilfgaardians are clearly Germany. Mm. Clearly, Germany. Um, yeah. So it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be too far outside too far outside their own possibility to see that we try and tackle some other big issues even at that time. So as long as they don't pull a David Cage and try and you know do a Detroit become human and just beat you over the head with you know <laughs> racism is bad. Yeah. Like, have it be there. Have it be a message, but don't beat you over the head with it every six seconds, like that piece of shit game tries to do. No, it, I can see the Witcher being smarter than David Cage. So it is a is lot it David smarter. Cage? Yeah, I was going to say yeah, Johnny Cage, David but that's Cage. Mortal Kombat. But yeah, <laughs> actually, the David Cage games feel like they're written by somebody who was punched multiple times in the face. Um, yeah, that no, the the books do a good job, and the TV shows doing a good job of being just they're going to just show you it and put some very obvious metaphors in there, and let you just mm. figure out the rest yourself. Um, for example, the the dryads, which were covered in season one have a very distinctly Native American feel to them. 
in yeah. that it's all about encroachment on forest-based uh, tribal peoples by civilization, yeah. you know, <laughs> capital C civilization. I mean, it's obvious enough that you don't really have to read too much into it, but if you want to sit there and study all the, the nuances of, like, the, the tribal ceremonies and stuff like that, you're like, okay, I can see what they're going for here. It's uh, it's pretty obvious, and the way they handle it's very good. Like, it's... Because that's part of the key part of the character of Geralt, is that he's an outsider too. He gets shit on a lot for being a witcher. He's a mutant, He's yeah. a, and he gets a little bit of the racism that the dwarves and the elves get, and that's why he bonds with elven and dwarf characters. It's goes to show that you can, you know, have a message and not beat people over the head with it. And I think that's that's quite quite heavy in the Witcher universe, you know. Like for example, in, in season one, when the the guy who's escorting Yennefer beats the living shit out of that uh, creature that uh, Yaskier finds, and then Geralt says, "If you gave it some food, it would have just fucked off need to kill it." Yeah, and that's one of the things I like about it. One of the many things I like about The Witcher, it's not just the case, it's not as cut and dry as you think. We kill the monsters, we, you know, we fight the bad guys, that kind of thing. It's just, we don't, if we can avoid fighting, we will avoid fighting. And that's what I think is in every iteration of The Witcher. Books, games, uh, TV shows. There's always that, you know, if you can avoid fighting, why not? And that's why, that's why I like it. It seems like I can have a new take. I say new take. The books have been out for a while, maybe late nineties, early two thousands, is when they started getting on people's radar. But they've yeah. been there for a while, and it's just it's interesting to see a different take on the the fantasy genre. Yeah, and I I do like the approach you talk about like the creatures and stuff. Certain animals, certain creatures are monsters. Certain creatures are just creatures. Think of them as an extension to the existing, uh, like range of creatures we have. I mean, talk about like shoving worlds together. If you didn't live in a world with tigers, and all of a sudden a tiger shows up, that's a fucking monster. Yeah. <laughs> it's a giant cat that eats things, and eats things all the time, never ending, and roars like a fucking like blasting air, like an airliner. You know, if you've ever heard a, a, a like a uh, a tiger's roar, it's fucking horrifying. Imagine you'd never heard that. Like, no one in your species has heard that noise before. And all of a sudden, there's like two of them roaring in the jungle. I'd be like, "Fuck this! Burn the jungle!" <laughs> yeah, there be demons. Get, get me a fire. Concrete wall around that shit. <laughs> We're not touching it. And it, it, part of it is like it's the balance between the extended like bestiary of the world, like the normal animals, plus the the weird animals. Like for example, dragons are a natural creature in that in that world, and that's there's part of the whole thing of like witchers don't kill dragons. Because they're not monsters, they're just animals. Yeah. And it's it's weird for us, because it's like, okay, that's not a real animal. It must be a monster. You're like, no, 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 this is different world, different rules. And yeah. they, they handle that very well. I also kind of like the idea that if something's uh, endangered, there's always, that, there's always that thing that the witchers will leave it be. When uh, Geralt's talking about the different classes of dragons, he says, well, they've all been hunted extinction, so... Not many, not much interest in killing them. Yeah, it's based on how much of a threat they actually are. Yeah, yeah, and that that comes in later with uh, one of some of the better characters in the show later on, or some of the, the mm-hmm. books later on. They're just different beings, or are they monsters? And you're like, hmm, interesting question. And it, you you start to get a little bit of that. I mean, you you take one look at uh, Nevelyn. 
and you're like, that's a monster, but you listen to him and he's just a sad old weirdo, you yeah. know, with regrets. With <laughs> magic powers and, you know, he can make seas of ale if you ask him to. <laughs> oh, that thing where, like, stuff just drops from the ceiling, that's canon. That happens in the books as well. <laughs> and it's way more is that confusing. the house or is that his magic? It's his magic with the house. Oh, right, right, right. The house responds to his command. So it materialises <clears throat> whatever he needs and just drops at his feet. And he's learned to cool. kind of channel it so he can drop things on the table. <laughs> he's, nice. he's been training himself <laughs> for years, mastering the arts <laughs> of making roast chickens fall from the sky. He's... <laughs> I'd get into so much trouble if I had that power. Just don't worry, <laughs> I had no work. <laughs> I just like the day of you being annoyed at somebody being like, roast chicken, snap your fingers, and it's a roast chicken falls to the ground. <laughs> Frozen chicken fall on his head. Uh, uh, but yeah, as you say, like, uh, there's a lot of different like conceptions, and a lot of the shows to do with, or a lot of the stories to do with, um, you know, what really is a monster, what is a horrible person, and you're, you're going to find some very dark answers by the end of the story. Uh, yeah. One thing I would talk about. You're going to find a lot of things that aren't as black and white as they they would seem to be, which I think is a valuable valuable lesson. Not to get not to get too bogged down in that kind of conversation, but yeah. Um, speaking of just other bits and pieces that I've, I've got notice on, uh, we talk about like the different like attitude stuff, like talk about Kahir earlier. Um, Yennefer and Kahir doesn't happen. They don't hang around together. That's not the thing. <laughs> Kahir fails to capture uh, Siri. Goes back to Nilfgaard, but like, sorry, boss, fucked it up, and goes gets thrown into prison. <laughs> yeah, um, and then like the way that's handled, um, like with them being told, oh, if you execute here, you'll, we'll, you know, you'll be a, a trusted part of the sorceresses uh, or the the lodge of sorcerers or whatever. Um, if that happens, and I'm very actually worried about the the way the plot point works out, Yennefer betraying the sorceresses prevents two major things happening in the books later on, or might impact two big things that happen later on and they're two of my favourite things in the story uh, one of which is I, I refer to it as the Sorcerer's, or Sorcerer's Ball mm. which is a gathering of all the sorcerers at the outbreak of the war which is coming so like it'll probably happen next season if we're staying on track and then uh, the Lodge of the Sorceresses which is later on uh, but they're two of my favourite things because it leads to the best character interactions it's, it's the best dialogue in the books, is this ultra like competitive, highly sexualized, just bitchiness between the sorcerers and them all trying to seduce different people, but also try to stay like coy and on on the good side of everyone else in the room. So it's it's a very good it's very good scenes that I like are perfect for television. But the way it happens and like what's happened in the show, I'm like, does this prevent this from happening? I, I hope not, because I kind of need all those characters to be in the room or be able to be in the room together without murdering each other. And at this rate, that's not going to happen. I think what the show's kind of smart about doing is that it's it might not do things the way you think it's going to do, but they'll, they'll show up. So I can see, I mean, Yennefer, she, she did, let's just put it bluntly, she did betray the mages. But they'll forgive that. That Tessaya, she fucking loves her. So yeah. She'll be back. I wouldn't worry about it. We'll see. It's, uh, it's an interesting because it's it also features my favourite thing, which is just Awkward Geralt, where he's trying to be nice to a bunch of people he can't fucking stand. <laughs> and I just want to see Henry Cavill standing there in, like, a nice, like... Because most of the time, Geralt's in his armour. 
But this is when he's told, no, 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 go and dress up nice. He's got to wear the shirt that he clearly hates. He's like, everything sucks about this. <laughs> it's well, the that only... happens in uh, The Witcher 3 as well. They have to cl- when he meets Emir, uh, because Yennefer introduces him, he has to go and do this. Uh, he has to get washed and he has to put all these clothes on. It's just every five seconds he's pulling at his collar. Or he's like sh- uh, sorting his trousers or something like that. Yeah. It, it's cool. an entire like two or three chapters of the book dedicated to just awkward Geralt. And I fucking love it. <laughs> mostly because he's interacting with a bunch of characters who are trying to seduce him and some of them are being very subtle and nobody remembers that he can hear very well so they're trying to like discuss amongst themselves like well, I wonder if we could just grab his dick <laughs> and he's sitting there going oh my god what well, I can hear you <laughs> what are you doing and immediately that character comes over and he's like hey wait a minute <laughs> protect my junk <laughs> But the uh, so what you're saying is Geralt spends the entire part of this this series just covering his junk. Actually, I'm going to just talk about this now. Geralt is covering his junk too much in this show. In the books, everyone is fucking constantly. Nobody like there's been some shagging, not to the rate of the books. It is it is nonstop. It is. Geralt just lining up the hose, just one after another, after another, after another. <laughs> and the best part is, like, it's just part of the, the sorcerer's custom, because the sorcerers are all infertile. Part of their trade for their power is that they can't conceive children. So there's no consequences for them having sex. And if there were, they just find the magic workaround. <laughs> so the sorcerers are banging constantly. And then Geralt just like, fuck it, I'm out here whoring, might as well go for it. And it is every other chapter features him waking up in bed with some random skank and being like, hope Yennefer doesn't find out. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, there's a part of it, I actually realised that like part of the book, part of the story is about storytelling. I'll talk about that later. But when you talk about uh, one, one of the, a key trope of storytelling is unreliable narrator. Geralt lies about his sexual conquest so much to Yennefer <laughs> that I'm like, Wait a minute, I, I caught on to it because she's like, Tell me you haven't been with another woman. He's like, Um, yeah, totally, baby. Um, I love you. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, You banged a chick in the last chapter. What are you talking about? <laughs> she can probably smell her on you. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, just part of the books is just this never ending string of like characters waking up in bed with another character going, Hmm. <laughs> Forgot about that. He's getting brushing himself down and going to get breakfast. <laughs> but yeah, um, actually, it's just in regards to Yennefer, um, this probably doesn't come up that much and probably doesn't matter that much. Um, Yennefer is stealing other people's plot points. Um, the two that I know of are the the fourteenth name on the hill. Um, it's actually Chris Marigold, who is the fourteenth character that dies on the hill at Sodden. Um, mm. she was supposed to be dead as a mage, but was found and miraculously recovered. Um, not Yennefer. And also, after that, she loses her magic, which is one of Ciri's plot points in the books. So, mm. for some reason, they're giving Yennefer all these story points, and they talk about it on the behind-the-scenes. Uh, they talked about the fact that Yennefer doesn't really have that much to do, but for some reason, they just don't... Like, they don't just do that. They have to give other characters' plot points to Yennefer instead. Which is a shame because I obviously Siri has a great uh, part of the books, and her losing connection to magic is less severe and less intense 
So I get why giving it to Yennefer when Yennefer's identity is built around magic. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense with the, the, the theme that they're going for, where they want to um like have magic or have her like find a new identity and that identity being a family that she builds with Geralt, even though she's infertile. Like that's mm. they they gave it to her for that purpose, and I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of like it, it just makes her weaker than she needed to be, and would explain other things like why she can teleport, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think why they do stuff like that is mostly down to probably just popularity of the character. Uh, the games have a lot to answer for, a lot of people being. Uh, you know, still alive in in the series, I think, because I know Triss, Triss is, you know, at a certain point, is meant to, you know, be pushed off the board, but I think the games did a lot to kind of keep bringing her back. So, I think... As far as I'm aware in the books, Triss yeah. is still alive at the end. Alright, well, I'm talking shit then. <laughs> <laughs> Triss, by the way, another badass character that doesn't really get enough love. Um, She's there at the, at the Sodden, and they have her, like, basically, I think she gets blinded or something. Which I think is actually a trade-off. Like Yennefer was supposed to be blinded, but still has magic, whereas Triss didn't have the magic connect. Or yeah, though Ciri didn't have the magic connection, but Triss is supposed to be dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, interesting enough, uh, Triss and the Witcher scene. You know where they like she finds or she goes to meet the the Witchers and stuff, and like talk to Ciri about her magical abilities. That mm-hmm. scene of her scolding the Witchers is not just for the TV show; it's in the books as well, and it's just as fucking funny. Right. That scene where she's like, "You don't give her proper clothes. She doesn't eat well. Why is she training constantly? She's beaten and bruised up. What do you do when she's got a period?" And all the witches go, "Ooh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> that kind of <laughs> we don't talk about that time of the month here. <laughs> we're man, we're men, we're manly men. We don't talk about that." And it's just as fucking funny in the books. I honestly was laughing my ass off. I was on a treadmill listening to it at the time. I was, like, I should not be listening to this. I'm gonna fall off the damn treadmill. <laughs> It's, uh... I did like that. Uh, I get that this isn't in the books. They, they never at one point in the books describe uh, Triss Merigold as having red hair. I like that to say to satiate the people who have only played the games that are watching the TV show. They gave her slightly red hair. Oh, she's definitely red hair. Yeah, but show. not in the books. I, as far as I know. Yeah, I think I can't remember the comment on it. It's one of the things that, like, if it's not in the in the books, the games are there for the canon. Because right. it's one of the things of like it closer to the original source, you know, mm-hmm. and people just expect um, once that the game's set something impressed and like that's how it looks or that's how it behaves. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, other than that, the only thing I want to bring up is that the the deathless mother, who is like a key part of like m- like the maybe final third of the show. Yeah, not uh, she's not in the books. Not in the books at all. Nope. Uh, interesting character, uh, an interesting creation. Uh, she's based on the Baba Yaga of Slavic uh, mythology, uh, like yep. the, the old witch in the woods, but uh, not a part of Like She's good to tie together a bunch of the different plot points for the sorceresses, but um, the second book ends uh, with Geralt versus uh, Rince, or Rince, he's uh, the, the mage hunter. Yeah. Yeah, that's the end of the book. And the uh, like, the the added extra stuff was obviously to tie together, or to give them a big villain to face at the end of the year. Oh yeah, but she's an interesting character. I I quite like the the idea of them just having like an extra little thing that they add, and it keeps things fresh for people who've read the books. 
Because now think... we really don't know where it's going to go. I just kind of rationalised it by saying, oh, they were just doing that to introduce... Uh, what's his name? Or to, to introduce a member of the Wild Hunt. That's the only reason I thought they were doing that. Because she kind of rides out, meets other other members of the Wild Hunt, and then she transforms. So I thought, well... Yeah, I, for, that. I forgot that how just that... Uh... For that. I forgot how that concludes, and I watched the episode Family again because I went to watch the battle for Kier Morn again, um, which is awesome. I, I love that episode. Um, the big, the big like portal fight against the basilisks. Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. I like that they went dinosaur inspired rather than like lizard inspired. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool as well. I just thought the, the design of them in general was pretty fucking cool. Yeah, <laughs> when the last one comes out, there's a giant white one. And you're like, oh my god, it's huge. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and like the, like the the way that the portal and all the magic involved like breaks apart the Witcher tree, which, again, not a part of the books, not a part of the the games, but just a thing they added for the TV show. A nice little visual thing of like, hey, here, this is all the loss that's happened to the people, the the Witchers of Kiermorn. Like this is all they've suffered. It's a very nice image. Only to find yeah, out. I like, I like that it shows that you know this is you know we were once all of these medallions were real people. I like that they threw in different versions of the Wolf Medallion as well. There was the the kind of uh, coin amulet version of the one. There was the one that was the actual sort of effigy of the wolf head. That was pretty cool, just to mix it up a bit, show that not everyone had the same thing. Yeah, either it's I don't know if it's personalized or if it's just something that changed over time because the the order of the Witchers is ancient, but yeah. it, it's weird. I wonder what which answer it is. But I wonder if they'll touch the other. There's other orders of the Witcher as well. Uh, there was the cat, the bear, and the viper. Yeah, and I wonder if they'll touch on those as well, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, you have I know to. Silly going to school of the cat, uh... and I know there's other members of the there's other witchers out there that are. There was one that's made for the games. I don't know if they'll bring them into the the TV show at all. But Letho, he's school of the school of the bear, mm. school of the viper. So yeah. Yeah, they, they I haven't don't know touched... if they're going to just start folding other things in. So yeah, for the books, uh, Siri has just trained with the wolves, and then that's it. Alright. Yeah, uh, she trains with the wolves. Triss comes in and has the rant about, what are you doing with this young girl? Let it be a little girl for five minutes before you turn out in a fucking monster. And then they have uh, like her getting pulled away to go study magic um, by both, I think it's Triss to begin with, and then I think she's working with Yennefer as well. Which, if I want to talk about one thing, um, like... I don't know where you're at, but all, all my notes I have now are based on um, like what I want to see for season three, unless you have anything else you want to add. I don't have notes. All <laughs> <laughs> of you assume that I write things down. Uh, uh, just if you have anything else you want to talk about. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just slowly rattling through the shit that I remember thinking, oh, that was cool, that was cool, that was cool. Mm. Uh, the only other note that I could really think of is probably something that I should have spoke about in, when we were talking about season one. But Kahir... Being able to fight back Vilgefortz pisses me off. Because <laughs> Vilgefortz should be able to mop the floor with Kahir. But, you know. Yeah. He'll probably go back and fight him again. Kahir's not. A, he's not an interesting he, character, to be honest. He's just kind of. He's Kahir's there. a little bitch. Fuck him. <laughs> he, he's there to terrify a little girl, and that's all he should do, and then he just fuck off. Yeah. What I kind of want to see in season three, because I, I guess we'll just move straight on to that. I don't have anything else to really talk about. Uh, what would I like to see in season three? I'll let you go first, so it gives me time to either copy you or come up with something myself. Uh, so I mean, the the main thing 
and this is just it's part of the world development as part of the storyline and it's just part of what brings everything else into play uh the war between Nilfgaard and the north needs to be done right it can't just be the same as uh like game of thrones like the the war against the north the undead there it needs to be kind of like that ongoing uh war between the kings that was there for game of thrones where it's multiple armies move against each other for like it takes a while and part of what makes it interesting for the books is that it's it actually has very little to do with Geralt. He doesn't want to like he's weaving his way along the battle lines, trying to get past them to get somewhere else. The wars are like an inconvenience to him in a way, but it also like with the amount of characters they've got, they will need to handle that with how all the mages line up on what side of the war and who gets involved with what and who is willing to actually get involved or who stays back or who says. Hey, let's just like stick to what we know, and that's magic. And who you know grabs a sword and who helps out, um, that. And I'd say, uh, what's he more dwarves? Um, Yarpin Zevin is a great like character, and him and his lads are always fun to see. Um, and but like for the war, whole battalions of dwarves show up, and they are savage. They are absolutely brutal fighters, and I'd love to see how they translate that into like an actual battle scene. Um. Just because the the dwarf characters in the show have been good so far, I want to see more of the dwarves because they're such a, and yeah, they do the whole kind of like, uh, not Scottish dwarves. They're not as Scottish as most dwarves in fantasy series. We've discussed that in the past, but they are very they're a very fun people in the series, and I'd like to see more of those. Um, yeah, anything you want to bring up? We got more. Hmm. Yeah, uh, the one thing that I want to see, I want to see Zoltan, Zoltan Chevet. Talking about dwarves. I mean, if they can't find a Scottish actor to do it, I mean, I'll do it if you need me to. <laughs> I'll spend months in the gym, get ready for that. I don't know if Zoltan's in the books though. I see. I, he. I don't think he is. Uh, just looking. Yeah, Zoltan is a. If he's not in the books, he's a he's a companion of Geralt. And, uh, I think you find him in a bar or something. Which three? Hmm. Uh, and you know, he's got a mohawk. Very very Scottish. Oh no! Wait, Zoltan uh, no, he... is in the books. He's actually the main dwarf that's in the Novgorod War. Yeah, he's uh, a he's lot of briefly fun. mentioned in the books. Yeah, or briefly uh, appeared in the books. Field Marshal Windbag, his pirate is fucking hysterical. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that character. Um, he's he's interesting because he's that typical kind of gruff uh, veteran soldier character that shows up in a lot of these fantasy series. But uh, the way that he actually you know, is handling the situation, where he's, he's just. It's weird to see the veteran soldier just giving a shit about common people. And so I've got to assume he will appear later on. So yeah, having Zoltan appear and having him done right would be a great benefit to the series. I know, uh, was it Yargren you said? Uh, Yarpen Zygren. Yeah, he's he's more of a companion to Geralt. It says that Geralt knows uh, Zygren more than he does Zoltan. So mm. I can imagine they'd probably go... You know, try and bring him in more than they would other yeah. characters. I hope they don't trade the characters off. I think we could have two great dwarf characters and have them go side by side. Yeah. Well, they are, the way I see it, they're trying to do justice to both uh, comic comics, uh, books, and uh, games. So I can see them, you know, trying to find the happy medium, try to put both in there just to keep everyone everyone happy. Um, my other notes were uh, I want to see them play a bit more with the the concept of storytelling because it's a big part of the books. Is that it's not just about you know can you really trust the storytelling, but the uh, 
the unreliable narrator before, but um, that's a decent part of the story. Is actually, you know, we we learn, and I think it's been mentioned in the in the the show already that Dandelion's already told Geralt we lie to make stories to make them fit the the narrative we want to tell better. We'll tweak stuff, we'll adjust stuff, we'll make things more interesting to the audience. We'll we'll have more fun with the like we'll take some liberties in a sense. And you can hear some stuff starting to twist about stuff we know has happened or stuff we've seen happened and how it becomes like a folk tale, like it becomes a bit of an urban legend and then all of a sudden like the, the characters get uh, misplaced, the beast becomes ten times larger, the witcher slays it with a single blow of his sword because it's more heroic, it's a better story. And I want them to play a bit more with that because it comes into a key part when it comes to um, like the, the legend of the Elder Blood and like you, there's even one point in the books where they quote the same event from the elven side of what happened and the human side of what happened. And it's yeah. fascinating to see the different perspective of what really, of what went down. And then the book never really tells you what the real answer was. Yeah, leaves it up to you to figure it out. I, I quite like that. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just, I, I like that. And I really hope they play with that a bit more. I have my one last point, but I, I don't know if you want to go next. Uh, no, I've... Uh... The points that I've made, you've kind of covered as well, and I'd only be kind of just adding on to what you said. So yeah, if you want to round this out, so to speak. The last part, and this is what I'm going to say, is arguably the most important part, and I'm hoping that uh, it's already been taken into consideration. I have a little bit of hope there, I'll explain that in a moment. But I mentioned this earlier, that there is a family bond between Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri. It's not a happy mm-hmm. family, it's not a great family, but the relationship between those three is a key part of the books. Key part of the games as well, as far as I can tell. Um, but it is... I mean, Geralt and Ciri have a great father-daughter relationship, but I feel like there's, the relationships with Yennefer need to be taken up a notch. I'm not sure if we have time to do it uh, with regards to like how far events are into the books. Because a large part of Geralt and Yennefer's relationship is just this long-running, corrupted relationship where it's not as good... It's not a, it's not a healthy relationship... It's at the point where, you know, if you had a relationship with a girl the same way that Geralt and Yennefer have a relationship, and you said, hey, I'm thinking about getting back together with her, I'd slap the shit out of you, okay? <laughs> it's not healthy. I'm going to save your, I'm gonna save you from yourself, and I'm going to tell you not to get back with her. And I don't know if, I, I mean, there's part of it's there. Um, part of, for example, uh, episode 7 of season 2, uh, Geralt catches up to Yennefer and uh, Ciri and Sintra, and Geralt is, like, full dad mode. He's furious at Jennifer, and he's got a sword at her neck and he's like hey she's mine say it out loud Ciri is mine yeah. it's a weirdly possessive scene but their relationship is very possessive and ugly and I don't think the story has let them be together long enough that it's really showing you how ugly their relationship is and I kind of hope that it's there and I hope that they, they get a little bit of time to work with Jennifer and Ciri's relationship as well they actually have a very good, uh, like in the books, the relationship seems like a family like living apart, like separated parents, but not like they have kind of fallen out of love with one another. They are having arguments constantly, but it's not like a divorced couple. They're still trying to keep together for the kid, the kid being Siri. And I wonder, yeah. I mean, like Tris Marigold at one point is the new stepmom at one point in the relationship. Um, I think actually Yaskier refers to himself as the uncle of the relationship as well. Because, you know, he, he, he knows of Siri, but I don't think they meet that much. And it's, uh, like, the, the family relationship, I think they're missing out on that. 
and that's what makes part of the later part of the books so impactful is the destruction or the um the the stress put on the family relationship between the main trio and i, I hope that they're doing it they're going to add more to this because uh the behind the scenes for season two the showrunner says hey the family aspect of this is a key point so i'm hoping they'll know that they're taking the notes they're going to work more of their family kind of drama into the into the dialogue into the the small moments that they have i'm hoping that comes through but I, it's it's something that, like there's stuff that happens later on that only happens within a family so i'm hoping that they can they can get it right i can see them given how on the record as a very pushy fan uh, henry cavill has been i can see them taking it very seriously and trying to inject it into the series as much as they can yeah i'm hopeful and this is actually one of the few times i say i'm actually looking forward to season three for the show i really yeah. uh there's a lot of times recently where you, i feel like i've been stung i can't wait for this thing or uh, but i feel like the witcher now has a bit of a track record um not all of it is like 100 percent. there's some like missteps and stuff like that but for the most part i'm quite happy with what i've seen so far yeah um like like I said, I was not expecting the first season to be so good, and the second season, there, I like it, there was a kind of slog at a little point, but apart from that, it's been fairly solid throughout. So, and it's it's good to it's good to find a show that, or it's good to get into a show and like a show as much as I do, when you didn't expect it to be that good. So, I'm I'm all happy for them to continue, basically doing what they're doing. Yeah, I think we're going to end up with a ton of caveats like, this is not going to be the book Witcher, or sorry, not the book Witcher, but it's not going to be the same as the game, it's not going to be the same as the book, it's going to be its own narrative, and we're, there's going to be stuff that's going to piss us off inevitably. But, yeah, it's still a good show, really enjoying it so far. So I'm guessing that means we would solidly recommend The Witcher Season 2. Yeah, absolutely. Shouldn't we'll surprise anyone. It. We've been talking about it for 80 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say maybe try and pass it out to yourself because I watched it all within a couple of days. Then I was like, "Well, I have nothing left to watch." Especially and, uh, the book of Boba Fett coming out every week is just a all tease. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, you get into it, then the show finishes. Like, oh, it, it needs to be at least ten minutes longer. And that's what I will say. Like, it's almost like an hour-long episode each week, or each yeah. episode for this one. So yeah, eight hours of film. I mean. It's not quite the same as watching um forty minute shows. It does yeah. seem a little bit longer, but yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a good dense series. And I'm surprised that they went for the runtime over the episode numbers. Yeah. But I guess Netflix can just kinda of do that. I mean, they're not beholden to T V production schedule. They just can say, Fuck it, eight episodes. Do you wanna yeah. make them an hour long? It works for us. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the good things about doing uh streaming. You can just kinda of... You just kind of think, well, let's make this show 15 episodes. We don't need to make it a, an even run. We can just say, here's 15 episodes. Go and, go and watch them at your convenience. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice change of pace. And hard hard recommendation for The Witcher. And anything else to add to that? Uh, just go watch it. Yeah, uh, yeah go watch it. I, I can't put any more bells and whistles on it. Well, I guess with that in mind, uh, I've been Colin Graham. I've been Dom Anderson. And we've been talking gibberish about The Witcher.